Well, hey, Chapelaine, it's really great to be here with you again. And if you're visiting tonight, it's great to um, know that you're here. My name's Jodie on staff here. We're going to read God's Word together. We get to hear from God as He speaks to us through His Word. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Uh, the author of the letter to the Hebrews has just warned the, uh, the recipients of having hard and unbelieving hearts and encourages them to encourage one another to continue to, continue to fix their thoughts on Jesus, to guard against this. Verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above that says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For in the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thank you, Jodie. Chapelaine, good evening. Great to be with you. My name's Tim. It's a real privilege to be opening up God's Word for us. A uh, a quick heads up, there's no uh, questions and comments tonight because we have uh, dinner afterwards. So if you have questions or comments, come sit at my table and we can... Chat to our heart's content. Genuine invite. We'd love to chat with anyone about the stuff of the sermon or anything else. Um, James opened us up this evening by saying that uh, his hope is that we would have a Theophilus moment. That's my hope, right? That we have a, a moment of recognizing that this is a trustworthy word. So let's pray to our God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks You haven't left us by ourselves to work out who you are or what you've done for us in Jesus, but you have given us your word. And so, Father, we pray that as we come to it this evening, that you would mold us and shape us as your people. Do not leave us unchanged, we pray. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, Chaplain, we're going to play a little game to uh, kick us off this evening. And uh, this is not a drill. Genuine participation is requested and required. If you're watching online at home, good evening to you. You can play along from your lounge rooms, even though it's not an interactive thing for you. But for those in the room, I want you to tell me what do the following things have in common? Woodworking and flower arranging. Woodworking and flower arranging. Anything, anyone got something in common between those two? Working with your hands. Excellent. Not what I'm after for. Sorry, Mia. Sorry, Mike. Boredom. Excellent. They might create boredom. They might be a solution to boredom for some, but that has that in common. Okay. Neither of those is what I'm after. So let me give you a couple more. What do the following things have in common? Woodworking, flower arranging, dog training and composting. Right. Does that help us at all? It all takes time. Good effort. Not quite what I'm searching for, but uh, anyone else? Helping one another. They are ways that you can help one another. Uh, you could do somebody else's composting for them and that would be a great help. But uh, not quite what I'm after, Jacob, but thank you. Uh, let me add two more. What do the following things have in common? Woodworking, flower arranging, dog training, composting, alpine skiing and bird watching. Does that help us at all? Patience. We had that a few times up today. That, they require patience. One more. They are all hobbies. Not quite what I'm searching for, but uh, you've played admirably, Chapel Lane. So congratulations on your attempt. What they have all in common is that these are things that you require training in, right? And you can buy how-to books for these things, for each of these topics that has the word Bible on it. So you can get the woodworking Bible, the flower arranging Bible, the whatever Bible. Here's my personal favorite. Uh, this is... Um, those upstairs, if we can go to the dog training slide. Uh, Brittany Boykin has written the dog... Oh, that's a very interesting reaction. I haven't had that one today. Brittany Boykin has written the dog training Bible. If that subtitle is too small for you to read from your seats, let me read it for you. It says, how to train your dog to be the angel you've always dreamed about. Now, I'll leave it to you to work out whether that dog is trained or tortured as it sits there with angel wings on its back. But either way, you can catch it on catch.com.au for $26.88. I don't know if that's a bargain. I haven't read it. Right? I, no reviews here. But here's how that happens, right? You have publishers who get given a dodgy how-to book and they've got to work out how to sell it. And so one of the things that they have up their sleeve to sell a dodgy how-to book is that they can slap the word Bible on there because they know that Bible communicates a sense of authority, a source of, a source of uh, dependability, a sense that this is the final and definitive word on the matter. And uh, that might help them sell some books. But there are people in our world, uh, and it might be that if you're visiting tonight, you are one of them who consider the Bible, the original Bible, to be the greatest publishing swindle of all time. Right? Just because someone put the word Bible on a book and it claims to be true, therefore so many people have bought in to the lie that it is true. And so is the Bible true or is it just fanciful tales about angelic realms and heavenly things and a bit of moral advice for humans rather than dogs? Right? Is the Bible just the human training Bible for those who are gullible enough to accept it? Well, we're back for another week of asking for a friend. It's been our sermon series throughout term four. 
It's been a great series for those who are genuinely wrestling with questions, working out whether Christianity is something that you want to jump into or not. It's also a great question for a great series for all of us because these questions are things that we need to grapple with and have good answers to. And tonight, our question is how can you believe the Bible is true? Now, there are some questions, Chapel Lane, that are difficult to answer. There are some questions that are simple to answer. There are some questions that are frustrating to answer. There are some questions that are just a joy and delight to answer. And this question falls into that category because I love the Bible. Like seriously, it is the most beautiful book in our world. And so my hope is that I can share some of that joy with you and that confidence with you. And... Uh, I hope I can do that because this is a, a good question and a multifaceted question. It's a personal question. How can you believe the Bible is true? It's a skeptical question, right? How do you know the Bible is true? Like not just historically accurate, but supernaturally true about the greatest things in our world. It's a searching question. How can you know? How can you believe genuinely the Bible is true? So we've got a threefold journey for us tonight. Chapel Lane. And my hope is that with each step on that threefold journey, we'll have increasing levels and reasons for confidence in the truthfulness of the Bible. First up, we're going to see that it is true to the original text. Second, we're going to see that it testifies to the truth. And thirdly, we're going to see that it is made true personally for you by the Holy Spirit. Uh, a quick word, I am going to use the Bible to defend the truthfulness of the Bible this evening. And that's circular, but necessarily so, right? You Use reason to establish that you can trust reason. There's not really another way to do it. You trust your experience because it matches with your experience, right? The higher something is when it comes to a claim of truthfulness, the more important it is that you use it to establish its own truth. And so because the Bible claims to be the word of God, in order to evaluate that, we need to come to it on those terms. And then we can unpack it and see whether it stacks up to that claim. So first up, we're going to see that the Bible is true to the original text. And we're going to do a bit of a case study in the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the people, the church in Galatia. And uh, we're going to use that as a bit of a case study to see whether the Bible is true to the original text or not. A warning, I'm going to nerd out just a little bit on this um, little section, so I'll try and keep it brief, um, but stick with me. Um, we don't have in our Bibles original manuscripts. We don't have the parchment that Paul wrote any of his letters on. What we have that our English Bibles are translated from are copies of copies of the original manuscripts. Now, depending on whether you were aware of that or not, that might be slightly disconcerting to you. Well, let me add to that level of disconcertment. Um, in the best 92 manuscripts on the letter to the Galatians, there are 1,500 units of variation that are little things that might be different between different manuscripts, which is a lot considering there's only 2,300 words in the letter. You can just imagine the headlines that might be generated by that kind of data, right? And that might be concerning for us, but let me assure you that historians don't balk at those sort of details. This is just the world of dealing with ancient documents. And almost, almost all of those 1,500 variations, you can establish which ones are false copies and which ones are genuine 
by working out which are the earliest manuscripts, which are the most trustworthy manuscripts, and you can whittle that down to a very small number. But there are still a few uh, examples in the letter to the Galatians of things that we're not genuinely sure about. And so I'm going to give you uh, an example. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4 says, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it says, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, that's a pretty significant verse. That's essentially like the Christian message in one verse. And it would be important that we can have great confidence that Paul wrote those words. But there is a variant when it comes to the manuscripts. There's one part of this verse that we're not 100% sure about. We're not sure. And this will help us to work out just, you know, is the Bible trustworthy or not? The thing that we're unsure about, I say we, I'm not contributing to this field of research, right? The people who spend their lives doing this are unsure of whether Paul said that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins or for our sins, right? Which Greek word did Paul use to communicate the concept for? Now, to be clear, there's no difference in meaning. There's no difference in English translation. There's no difference between the two. You've got two options. Now, the scholarly consensus is that it's the second one, Hooper, rather than the first one, Perry, that he uses. But that doesn't really matter. Can you, do you get my point? Right? The level of detail to which we can be confident that the Bible is faithful to the original manuscripts is things like this. Inconsequential matters that don't make a difference at all to what the Bible is communicating to us. And in a few situations where the Bible, uh, where we're unsure of exactly what the original manuscripts do say, your Bible will have footnotes for you. And it will say, little footnote, some manuscripts say this variation. Which means that the Bibles you hold in your hands are completely transparent. They're not trying to hide anything from you. They're not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. You can have great confidence that the Bibles you hold are accurate to the original text. And let me tell you that the more work you do into studying this stuff, the more confidence you have that there is careful, meticulous historical and archaeological research that goes into giving us confidence that the Bibles we hold in our hands are true to the original text. We can trust it, that the words on the pages that we read are what was written originally. Which brings us to our second point tonight, which is the contents of what's written on the pages, what the Bible testifies to, and the Bible testifies to the truth. Now, one of the most compelling arguments, I think, for the Bible's trustworthiness and its truthfulness is that its complexity is only surpassed by its simplicity. Let me say that again, in case Siri's confused. Because it sounds like a contradictory statement, but the Bible's complexity is only surpassed by its simplicity. The Bible is a complex book, and it might be that you were sitting there listening to Hebrews 4 read before going, there's a lot going on here that I don't quite understand, right? There's some complexity in there. And when you extrapolate that throughout the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, there's complexity. At least 35 different human authors written over thousands of years. It's a complex document. Here's a picture that uh, displays for us the complexity of the Bible. Each one of those colored lines is a link between one part of the Bible and another. It might be a quote. It might be some sort of conceptual link. It might be an allusion that's in the text, 63,000 links. 
There it is there, according to the scholar who generated that graph. That is a complex book. And so that means that in order to study the Bible faithfully, you've got to constantly be sort of going back and forth to work out, well, what's this referring to? What's this alluding to? And you can do that for your entire life and never exhaust the complexity of the Bible. The Bible is a complex book, and yet its complexity is only surpassed by its simplicity. Because for all of that color and all of those 63,000 links, there is one very simple message. In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders, people who loved getting into all of the complexity of the Bible and were very eager to tell everyone else just how complex their understanding of the Scriptures was. But Jesus rebukes them for missing the Bible's simplicity. John chapter 5, he says, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. Jesus is saying that all of the Old Testament... And all of the New Testament, by implication, is about him. It's to help us understand Jesus. It's a simple message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's our only hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. For all of the promises that the Old Testament makes about how God is going to save his people, love his people, serve his people, interact with his people, they become yes in the person of Jesus. The whole Bible is complex, but it is simple. It's telling us Jesus is the answer to any question that you can have. Karl Barth was one of the sharpest theological minds that the 20th 20th century had. And uh, he's a guy who gave his entire life to studying the Bible and pulling together a theological system to rightly understand God. And in 1962 in Chicago, he was part of like a Q&A kind of thing. And someone asked him the question, can you summarize your life's theology in one sentence? And you know what Karl Barth said? He said, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. The Bible is complex but it is beautifully simple. It is simple enough that a three-year-old can grab hold of it and understand it. It is complex enough that you can give your entire life to it and you'll never exhaust it. And that combination means that it is a compelling document, something that is worth taking seriously. And that complexity and simplicity and the fact that it all points to Jesus means that if you're here tonight, and you are wrestling whether, about whether the Bible is true or not, or you have a friend who is wrestling about whether the Bible is true or trustworthy, then the best place to start is by opening up the Bible and start reading it. And ask the question, what does this show me about Jesus? Because the Bible is telling you that it's trying to tell you, tell you about Jesus. So ask that question. Grab one of the Gospels, start reading and you might just meet the person of Jesus on the pages as you read. Because the Bible testifies to the truth, the one who is true. The third point tonight is that the Bible is made true personally. If we analyze the sermon thus far, right, historical study, tick, get to Jesus, tick, pretty conventional. My third point is where we get a little bit funky. And my hope is, that this will be uh, 
a great encouragement to you and give you uh, what I think is an even deeper reason to trust the Bible's truthfulness. And that is that you need to let it speak to you, to you personally, because that's how the biblical authors anticipated that it happened. We're reading uh, Hebrews chapter four tonight. That was the reading that we had for us. And uh, the reading began in chapter four, verse one, continued through to 12, verse 13. Uh, The section itself actually begins in chapter three, verse seven. And that whole section, chapter three, verse seven to chapter four, verse 12 and 13 finishes with Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That is a very provocative image, right? Sometimes when you read the Bible, it comes to you like a sword. It's big confronting truth that you need to deal with in the moment. But other times the Bible comes to you and it is like a scalpel and it just pokes at one little thing in your heart that you thought was hidden. And it starts scraping away at that and making little incisions until that little thing is gone. The Bible is sword and scalpel. And that's the sort of summary verse for this whole section. So what's going on in the section that leads us there? That's the question that I want to help us answer. So we've got to start at chapter three, verse seven. And there we read, So as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, this is a quote from Psalm 95 in the Old Testament. Remember, hyperlinked document referring back and forth to itself all the time, quoting Psalm 95. Now, if you were writing an essay and you are quoting uh, Psalm 95, now you're probably not going to do that in one of your essays, but you could conceptually. You're introducing a quote and you've got options as to how you're going to introduce that quote. And so you could do so as the psalmist says. Or you could say, as Psalm 95 said. But the writer to the letter of the Hebrews chooses, as the Holy Spirit says, God has written this down. God has spoken these words. And note, too, that it doesn't say, as the Holy Spirit used to say a thousand years ago when Psalm 95 was written, nor does it say the Holy Spirit said, it says the Holy Spirit says, right? Present, ongoing, active work. Which means that when the quote starts today, if you hear his voice, the writer to the letter of the Hebrews is imagining that that truth, that scripture is not just written to the people who it was originally written to in Psalm 95, but that his readers on that day are having this spoken to them today, that the Holy Spirit would in some way put this on their heart and confront them with this truth. It says, today, if you hear his voice, which means that if it was true a thousand years before Hebrews was written and it was true when Hebrews was written in the first century, it is still true today that the Holy Spirit speaks to us through his scriptures It's not like it's audible and you necessarily hear a voice, but the Spirit communicates this to you personally. And so if you're confronted by the Scriptures, then heed the warning of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. It's re-quoted in chapter 4 verse 7. It says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. 3, 12, and 13 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
but encourage one another as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And so the message for us as we sit under and we consider the living and active word of God is don't harden your heart. Right? The Bible is not a book that you can stand in authority over. It is not a book that you can come to and decide, I'm going to pick and choose what bits I like and what bits I don't like and choose what I'm going to run with. It is a book that you are to be mastered by because it is the alive and active word of God. So my encouragement to you, Chaplain, is let the Bible master you. Do not harden your heart. To finish tonight, we're going to read the Bible. Revolutionary, I know, in a church. But we're going to try and bring together the things that we've seen so far. And we're going to just read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. And in a way that hopefully allows us to be mastered by this. And this is the kind of thing that I'll do when I read the Bible. I'm not holding myself up as the perfect Christian. I don't do that as often as I ought, and I don't do it perfectly, but it's just an example. I find it pretty helpful. My hope is that it's helpful for you. As I come to the Bible, when I read it, I'm asking the question and I'm praying to God, show me Jesus in this passage, because the Bible's telling me that it exists to point me to Jesus. So I'm praying, I'm praying, Father, show me Jesus as I read. And as I read, I'm thinking, what can I praise God for? What can I confess? Like, what do I need to uh, confess to God about my own sin? What am I thankful for? What do I want to ask for? Those sort of four things are in my mind, constantly also going, show me Jesus. So Hebrews chapter four, verse one and two. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So we know what's going on here. We've already seen the context, Psalm 95 in the Old Testament hyperlink document. There's some people who missed out on God's rest because they had hard hearts. And this seems to be talking about some sort of future eternal rest with God in heaven. Verse two, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, if you're eagle-eyed at that point, you'll see there's a little footnote. I had a look at it. doesn't really make much of a difference. But if you're interested, helpful to know the Bible's transparent, right? So I'm coming to this and I'm reading Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. I'm going, what in here is worth praising God for? And I'm going, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, just how patient is our God with us? Right? We were thinking that dog training required patience at the beginning of this sermon. But thousands of years ago, God was holding out to his people the offer of entering his rest. And because of their hard hearts, they decided not to do that. They turned away from him. Thousands of years later, he's still holding out to us tonight the offer of entering his rest. How patient is our God with us? I want to praise him for his patience. Verse 2 gives me something to confess. Second half of verse two, the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. And I'm thinking how often in my life with my fickle and forgetful heart, do I search for rest in other areas than God? But I think that I have the answers. 
I forget just how desperately I need God to be the solution in my life. And so I want to come before God and confess my sin, my fickle and forgetful heart. And I've got things to give thanks for. Verse 2 again, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us. Like, who am I? Who are you that the God of the universe would ensure that his news gets to your ears? Right? We are recipients of mercy and grace because God has made sure that his news comes to us and we can give him thanks for that. And finally, I've got something to pray for. End of verse one. Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. I want to pray, Father, hold on to me. Don't let me fall short of your great plans for me in Jesus. Right? I want to be mastered by this text. And constantly I'm asking the question, where do I see Jesus? And I've got to come back to that idea of news. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us. Now, again, hyperlink document. You need to understand some of the other things to work out what's going on there. You need passages like Galatians 1.4, that Jesus has died for our sins in our place. We need to know passages like 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 that say all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. But the good news that Jesus comes to you with is that he loves you. And he comes to you with news. He doesn't primarily come to you with demands. He doesn't primarily come to you with criticisms. He comes to you with news. I love you. And I have saved you. It is a message that we are to receive by faith. If we come and are mastered by the scriptures. What a wonderful thing to be mastered by. A gracious message of love. So, Chapel Lane, I encourage you, wonder at the simplicity of the Bible. It is true to the original text. We can have great confidence of that. It testifies to the truth. It tells us about Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And it is made true personally for us by the Holy Spirit. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus, Father, because we know how predisposed we are to rejecting him and to wandering away from him. And so, Father, we pray that you would open out that offer of rest to us still. May we respond by loving Christ and by submitting ourselves to your word and letting ourselves be mastered by your Bible. Father, I pray that you would give us a Theophilus moment where we are all of a sudden convinced of your trustworthiness as you've revealed to yourself to us in the word. And we pray that in Christ's name.